you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open up to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 9, and we're working through a verse-by-verse study through this incredible book of the history of the New Testament church. Last week, we looked at the first couple of verses where Saul saw a great light, and he saw that he had been persecuting the Lord, and then he was taken and led to Damascus, where he waited for a few days for an obscure saint. That's the title of this morning's message, an obscure saint by the name of Ananias, to come and pray for him and to tell him what the Lord wanted to say to him. So that's where we are this morning, Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 19, and we'll be talking a lot about how Ananias was used of the Lord to to encourage and to uh, give Saul direction. So here we go. We're diving in. Um, Luke wrote this book, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and in chapter 9, verse 10, he writes this, now there was a disciple At Damascus, named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord who had appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized." And taking food, he was strengthened. Father, we're grateful to read this passage of Scripture, to be reminded of the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus, the process of the aftermath of what he thought, how he responded here even in this section of the conversion. We pray, God, that you would open up our hearts and minds to be encouraged by Ananias, his witness, his testimony, and that you would teach us what you want us to learn today so that we could be more faithful ambassadors of Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it was the year 1858 in the city of Boston. Edward Kimball was a young Sunday school teacher who made it his habit to personally interact with each and every student about their need to repent of their sin and to trust Christ as their Savior. Anybody ever heard of this Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball? A couple of you have. Most of us have not. He was an obscure saint, and yet God used him in an amazing way. One of the boys in his Sunday school class was working at a shoe store. And one day, Kimball, the Sunday school teacher, went to that store and found him in the back stocking shelves. And after some personal interaction with that young man about what it truly means to be born again, that student turned from his life of sin and he put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. His name was Dwight L. Moody, who eventually left the shoe business to become one of the greatest evangelists of all time. 
And Moody became an international speaker and toured the British Isles. He preached in a little chapel pastored by a young man named Frederick Meyer. In his sermon, he told the story of his Sunday school teacher and the faithful teacher's witness to him. And the message changed Pastor Meyer's ministry, inspiring him to become an evangelist like Moody. Meyer eventually preached in America in Northfield, Massachusetts, where a young preacher heard him say, if you are not willing to give up everything for Christ, are you willing to be made willing? That remark led J. Wilbur Chapman to respond to God's call on his life. That man, Wilbur Chapman, went on to become an effective evangelist. He enlisted the help of a volunteer named Billy Sunday who helped him set up for his crusades. Billy Sunday learned how to preach Christ by watching Chapman and eventually took over Chapman's ministry, becoming a dynamic evangelist. And God used Billy Sunday and his preaching to bring thousands to Christ. Inspired by a Billy Sunday crusade in Charlotte, North Carolina, a group of Christian men dedicated themselves to reaching their city for Christ. And they invited an evangelist by the name of Mordecai Ham to come and hold a series of evangelistic meetings. The year was 1932. A local farmer loaded up his pickup truck with neighbors and young people and brought them to the meetings. One was a 16-year-old boy who sat in the crowd each night spellbound by the message. And every evening, the preacher seemed to be shouting and waving his finger at the young man. Night after night, the teenager came, and finally, on the last night, he went forward and gave his life to Christ. That teenager was Billy Graham. Billy Graham has communicated the gospel, probably, to more people than any other person in all of history. You probably know somebody who was led to Christ at a Billy Graham crusade. I talk to people regularly who have shared with me that was part of their testimony, And you just think about how it all started with this obscure saint by the name of Edward Kimball, a Sunday school teacher who cared for the souls of his students enough to personally make sure that they understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only eternity will reveal the impact that one teacher can have when invested in the life of his or her students. What an encouragement to us this morning, right? Don't give up, teachers. You might not think that you're getting through to those kids in your class who are twiddling their thumbs and picking their noses and doing other things that kids tend to do, but it may be that God's using you to bring the gospel to bear in the life of that young man and that young woman, that God may use them in amazing ways. You continue to rely on the Holy Spirit. You continue to persevere and to be faithful. Who knows if there may be an evangelist or a missionary or a pastor sitting in those chairs in front of you. Well, this morning, we're going to see how one lesser-known Christian did not give up, and his name was Ananias. And this is not the Ananias of Ananias and Sapphira from Acts chapter 5, who actually lied to the Holy Spirit and died there on the spot. This is a different man, Ananias of Damascus, a lesser-known Christian who lived there in Syria, and he had an incredible opportunity to impact the life of Saul, who became Paul, arguably the greatest, most effective apostle of the New Testament. This morning, we're going to see how Ananias was first commissioned to reach out 
in verses 10 through 12, convinced to obey even in difficulty, verses 13 through 16, and then we're going to see how he completed the work to which he was called in verses 17 through 19. Let's start with number one, he was commissioned, Ananias was commissioned to reach out, verses 10 through 12. Your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, simply says, Jesus called Ananias for this special work. Jesus called Ananias for this special work. Verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord, Now, we don't know a whole lot about this particular Ananias here in Damascus other than the fact that he was a disciple. Paul does mention him by name in his testimony, which he later gave in Acts 22, 12 through 13, in which Paul remembers in one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. In that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. It's another passage where Paul's talking about this event here in Acts 9. So we know that Ananias was a devout man. This meant that he was a God-fearing man who was reverent toward God. We also learned that he was a righteous man and how he lived. He kept the law. He walked in obedience. He He had a good reputation. He was the kind of guy that you could trust He was the kind of guy that you could believe in what he said. He was the kind of guy that cared about God and he cared about others. Please notice verse 10 says that he was a disciple. Now, presumably, he is a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, even though it's thought that he had a Jewish background, being one of the many thousands of Jews that lived in Damascus, that somehow he had already come to saving faith. And so he's a follower of Christ. He hears from Jesus. He obeys Jesus. He follows Jesus. That's what it means to be a true disciple. To be a disciple means that you're a follower. It means that you orient your life after your master that you give of your time and service to the Lord, that you worship him, that you adore him, that you serve him with deep conviction and with great joy. And the Lord spoke to Ananias in a vision and he simply said, Ananias. He called him by name. It's a special thing when you think about the Lord Jesus calling us by name. We were reminded of what we learned in John chapter 10 when we read about how Jesus is the good shepherd and Jesus knows his sheep by name. In fact, Jesus said in John 10 verses 3 and 4, to him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. You ever heard Jesus call you by name? It's an interesting and a beautiful concept of out of all the millions of Christians in the world that Jesus would call someone by name. And when the shepherd comes and the gatekeeper opens the gate, At that time, the shepherd enters into the sheepfold and he calls his own sheep and his sheep hear his voice and the sheep know, the shepherd knows his sheep and he calls them by name. And it's just a reminder here that Ananias is not just a Christian lost in the crowd. He is known by Christ. Jesus called him by name. Ananias responds with the only 
appropriate response that you could give, which is, here am I, Lord. Ananias knew Christ's voice. And Ananias is ready to follow the good shepherd wherever he leads. Ananias says, here am I, Lord. He's saying, Jesus, you are my master. The word Lord there. You're my sovereign God. You are the one I listen to. You are the one I submit to. You are the one that my heart longs to follow after. There's no other way that we can respond to the call of God except, yes, Lord, here I am. Here am I, Lord. Send me, as Isaiah even said in chapter 6. And this reminds me also of how Samuel, when he was just a boy, after the third time of calling his name, Samuel replied, speak, for your servant hears. Is Jesus calling you today? Are you listening? If you want to hear the voice of God, you must listen to the word of God. You must listen to Christ's voice today to you through his word. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Remember, Jesus is the living word. And God speaks to us through his son. And he speaks to us through Jesus. And Jesus speaks to us through his word. And his word is inspired by God. And it's how God communicates to us today. I doubt that you'll ever be able to say that you actually heard an audible voice from the Lord Jesus. I mean, he could do that. We just know that in today's society, we don't see that as a normal occurrence, and yet it doesn't mean he's not talking to us. He talks to us every day through his word. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So we know that we have the knowledge of God's voice through God's word. 2 Peter 1.4, by which he granted to us his precious and great promises. God tells us what he wants you to know through his word every day through the scripture. And the way that God speaks to us today is like that. That's how we have a knowledge of God. That's how we know that he's called us to his own glory and excellence. We're not looking to listen to the voice of God outside of scripture. We're looking to listen to the voice of God through the scripture. And that's how he's given us the precious promises that he gives to his children. It all comes through his word, the Bible. You know, we talk about how do you know if you're called by God. Ananias is called for a special service. You guys know I used to have another career when I worked as a physician's assistant, and I had a lot of trouble understanding how it is that God would maybe call me into the ministry. In fact, did I ever tell you about how the church where I attended in Savannah, Georgia, had an altar call at the end of every service, and you were invited to come down if you wanted to receive Christ, and you were invited to come down if you needed to confess sin, and you were just invited to come down if you wanted to talk with God and and to interact with him on any given level. And I remember on many uh, occasions, sometimes probably two or three times a month, I would be one of the first ones down at the altar just saying, dear God. I just want to know what you want me to do for the rest of my life. I I love working in medicine. I just don't know if that's really what I'm called to do. God, would you just show me? 
Just show me what you want me to do. And one Sunday after I would go down to the front, this doctor in our church, another medical doctor, came up to me and he said, hey, Adam, I see you going down front like every other Sunday. Is something wrong? Like, are you okay? Like, I, I, I just feel like you're pleading to the Lord and I just wanted to see how are you doing? Is there anything I can help you with? And his name was Dr. McGee. And I said, yes, Dr. McGee, I appreciate you asking. I'm really struggling. I don't know if God's called me to be a pastor or maybe a missionary or if I'm supposed to keep working in medicine. And he's like, you know what? We need to have you over for dinner. So Dr. McGee and his lovely wife had me over for dinner in their southern style plantation home in Savannah, Georgia. We're sitting there in the kitchen and we're eating and talking. And he says, well, Adam, tell us a little bit about, you know, what you think maybe God's calling you to do. And I was just sharing with him my testimony, my life story and working in medicine and the fact that I'm, I'm sensing maybe a call to go in the ministry, but I don't know if that's what God has. And so Dr. McGee looked at me and he says, well, have you asked God? And I'm like, well, yeah, I've asked God. And he's like, well, what did he tell you? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, that's what I'm trying to figure out. And he said, come with me. We get up from the table and we go into the front room, into the parlor of the house that you only take the most special dignitaries to. And so uh, we get on our knees there. He said, get down on your knees. And he said, I want you to pray to God and ask him what he wants you to do. And so I got down on my knees and I prayed earnestly, dear God, up in heaven, I'm asking you to let me know what you want me to do with my life. And I sit and listen for a few moments and then I get up and Dr. McGee looks at me and he says, well, what did he tell you? And I said, Dr. McGee, he didn't tell me anything. <laughs> and he said, try it again. So I get back down on my knees and I'm like, dear Lord, your servant listens. I am here, oh God. I just want to serve you with my life. I don't know what you have for me. Do you want me to go into the ministry? It got quiet for a couple of minutes, and I stood up, and Dr. McGee said, what did he tell you this time? And I said, I didn't get anything. He's like, try it again. <laughs> so I get down the third time. I pray to God earnestly for direction, surrendering my life to him. I get up after the third time. He said, what did you get? I said, Dr. McGee, I just not, I'm not hearing well. I'm not hearing a thing. He said, let me try. He gets down on his knees before God, prays in that front room of that house earnestly for God to show Adam what Adam's supposed to do with the rest of his life. And after several minutes of earnest prayer, he gets up and I looked at Dr. McGee and I said, Dr. McGee, what did he say to you? He said, I didn't hear anything either. <laughs> I'm like, what does that mean, man? I'm doomed. I knew it. I'm just going to be doomed. And he's like, no, man, what that means is you continue status quo. All right, you just keep being faithful and you just keep trusting God and you keep walking with God. He'll let you know when he's ready. And so for the next couple of years, I'm just like, all right, I still don't know what God's called me to do. And then one day, somebody asked me if I'd ever heard of a guy named John MacArthur. I told him I had. And they said, what do you think about him? And I said, I think he's a great preacher. He's a little long. <laughs> Sometimes can be a little dry. I hope he's not listening to this message. Uh, <laughs> But that I really appreciated how he handled the word because every time he opened the word, I would learn something new that I'd never heard before. And they said, well, if you're thinking about going in the ministry and learning the Bible, you need to go out to the master's seminary. So I Googled the master's seminary and there on the front page of the website, it simply asked the question, how do you know if you're called into the ministry? And I'm like, that's my question. There it is. Let's see what Dr. MacArthur's got to say about it. And guess what he said about it? He said, if you want to know if you're called the ministry, you need to open your Bible. 
to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And there's three tests there in that chapter that might help point a person objectively to the ministry. Number one, he's got to have a desire. 1 Timothy 3.1 says, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work that he desires to do. And the kind of man that God calls is a man who has a desire to serve Christ in a full-time way greater than any other desire to do any other thing for the rest of his life. I said, well, I feel like that's kind of where I'm at. Number two, he said he's got to have character. And that passage goes on in 1 Timothy 3 to talk about he's got to be a man above reproach and he's got to not be given over to the love of money and not a drunkard, you know, and, and he's, he's got to be a, a godly man. And so I examined my life and I felt like only by God's grace I was pursuing those godly characteristics and that I had not disqualified myself. And then the third part was he's got to be able to teach. He's got to be a man who's apt to teach, which means at least there's some type of raw talent or ability that he can communicate God's word to others. And I just sat back and looked at that. Desire, character, ability, all straight out of the word of God. And so I talked to my parents, talked to my pastor, talked to some other mentors, and they said, yeah, we see this. We affirm this in your life. We were just waiting for God to show you, get this, through his word. We're just waiting for God to show you. And I just want us to be careful. I'm not saying that I'm like some expert on knowing what everybody's supposed to do with the rest of their life, right? But I am saying we gotta be careful. We wanna listen to the voice of Christ. But Christ also speaks to us through the scripture and the dispensation of time that we live in today outside of the New Testament. Once the canon was closed and the gift of prophecy no longer functions in the same way it did, at least in the New Testament, then we've got to understand that we've got to be looking to God's word and digging into scripture, asking God to show us what he wants from us. And I think that's a little bit of something we need to be thinking about even today. Now we see here next that after Jesus called Ananias, he said to him, and uh, the next blank says, Jesus told him where to go. He told him where to go. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight and to the house of Judas for a man of Tarsus and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul for behold, he is praying. So here in verse 11, we see that Jesus told him to go to a certain street, not any street, but to a street called Straight. And did you know that actual street can be found today in Damascus? It was one of two parallel streets that ran from the western side of the city to the eastern side of the city. And this would have been in a very well-known located area right there in the middle of town. And nothing is known of this Judas who owned the house. Certainly it's not Judas Iscariot who went out and hung himself. So it was a common name at that time. So it was at a man's house named Judas. And so we know that this man was most likely a Christian himself, uh, but we don't know anything about him either. Uh, you can probably imagine, though, what Ananias, uh, what his initial thoughts may have been when Jesus told him where to go. I mean, all of the Christians in Damascus had by this time probably heard of Saul and knew that Saul may have even been on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus to capture them. They may have even been praying for divine intervention. They may have been praying for Saul's conversion. And now Ananias is hearing Jesus telling him to go to Saul, who is the arch enemy of the Christian faith. Can you imagine what that might have felt like for Saul? I mean, Saul was really uh, a bad guy, right? And he might have been wondering, is this guy really converted? What if Saul was angry? What if this was all a plot to get into the inner sanctum of the Christian network there in Damascus? Ananias may have been thinking, Jesus, what are you saying? 
You really want me to go talk to Saul? Are you trying to send me to an early death? He could have had all kinds of thoughts like that when he just tells him, go to Saul. And in many ways, this may have been a test of Ananias' faith. Would he be willing to go anywhere and to obey no matter the cost? I mean, that's what Jesus calls us to do, right? As his followers, Luke 9, 23, if anyone, Jesus said, would come after me, he must what? Deny himself. Does it say he must look for safety, look for common sense, measure it in your own eyes? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me every day, right? That's what God's called us to do. Matthew 10, 38, Jesus said, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So that's your option. You either pick up your cross and you follow him every day that he calls you, or you're not worthy to be a Christian. Are you willing to follow Jesus to the end of the earth? You should also ask the question, are you willing to follow Jesus across the street? Maybe he's not asking you to witness to the arch enemy of the Christian faith today. Maybe he's just asking you to be faithful to your neighbor today, to your family member, to your coworker, to be that person that would represent Christ to them. One encouraging observation here at the end of verse 11 would simply be the information clues us in that, uh, that something good has probably happened because Saul had been humbled. It says that he's been praying, right? Behold, Saul, he is praying. So we kind of get the sense here that it's heading in the right direction. Saul is seeking God's help. He's seeking understanding from God. And, and Saul is in a disposition to receive instruction from the Lord. And prayer is a way for all of us to lay out our concerns before God, our confessions before God, and our hearts before God. But God's going to speak to us through his word as he answers our prayers. It's going to be in alignment with scripture. But I love the way here that Saul is praying. So that does give us some hint that, that Ananias heading in that direction is going to, going to be part of extending the ministry that God has for Saul. So we're looking at, again, this first point. We've seen that Jesus is calling Ananias to a special work. We've seen him tell Ananias where to go. And then we see in verse 12, your next blank, that Jesus informed Ananias of what he was to do. He informed Ananias of exactly what he was to do, verse 12, and he has seen a vision, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him that he might regain his sight. Isn't this interesting? While Ananias is seeing a vision of Christ, according to verse 10, he is told that Saul is having like the same vision there in verse 12. So Ananias is having a vision of what to say to Saul, while Saul is having a vision that a man named Ananias was going to come lay hands on him that he might regain his sight. God was preparing the worker, and God was preparing the work. God was preparing the deliverer, and God was preparing the receiver to accomplish what it is that God's called him to do. And we can take great encouragement that if you feel prompted in your spirit to share Christ with that individual, don't forget it may be that God's already working in that individual in an amazing way so that they might be responsive to the message it is that God wants you to tell them. Doing what God calls you to do requires great faith. You have to take him at his word and just be reminded of all the biblical examples we have. Think about how God told Noah to build an ark. And God told Abraham to go to the land that I will show you. And God told Moses to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And God told Nehemiah to build a wall. And God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. And Jesus told the disciples to follow me. 
Jesus told Peter to step out of the boat and walk on water. Jesus told John to care for his mother. The Holy Spirit told Philip to go to the road that led to Gaza. Jesus now tells Ananias, go to Saul. Again, what is it that Jesus is telling you to do? I put this here in your outline. The next slide here just says three things Jesus calls every Christian to do. See if you agree with these. Number one, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. If you're wondering, well, what is it that Jesus is calling me to do? Well, why don't we just start with what we know? And what we know is Mark, uh, Mark 12, 30, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. You can just start with that. I'm not sure, God, what you want me to do, but I know you want me to love you with all that I am. And God, I confess I have idols in my heart and desires that don't glorify you. And I'm asking God that in order I could be a pure and holy vessel, that you would help me to love you first with all of my heart. Second thing that Christ calls every Christian to do is to love your neighbor as yourself. The second greatest commandment we know, Mark 12, 30, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That means this morning, on this day, if there be any other person that you have a conflict with, it is God's desire that you would pursue reconciliation. It is God's desire that the two of you would become one. It could, become, it could be between a husband and a wife this morning. It could, become, it, would, it could be between a, ch- a parent and a teenager this morning. It could be you and another person at this church. And somehow there's something happened and kind of split you guys up over a disagreement over something. And you're wondering, well, what does Jesus want me to do about it? Well, he wants me to love them as I love myself. And that means we got to pursue this. we got to work through this issue. We need God's help in order that we could really love and serve one another with nothing between us. A third thing that Christ calls every Christian to do is number three, to go into all the world. To go into all the world. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, Jesus said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Remember, the call to go into all the world again starts at home in Jerusalem. It goes on to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, according to Acts 1.8. And so it starts in your own home that we're to go and to make disciples, to hold people accountable to the word of God, to help them to not only evangelize them, but help them to observe all that I have commanded you. We have a responsibility to our brothers and our sisters and our neighbors. And I would just encourage you, if you're wondering what it is that God wants you to do, just start there. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Share Christ with everybody that you meet. And God, in time, I believe, will continue to work through your heart and potentially the circumstances at hand to show you how it is that you could spend the rest of your life. We're we're all called to obey these kind of directives from Jesus. And so may he help us walk in obedience to him each and every day. So we've seen how Ananias was commissioned to reach out. Let's look now at our second point. Number two, he was convinced to obey even in difficulty. Look, this isn't going to be easy. Your next blank says, what Ananias wants is human protection. What he wants is human protection. Again, I'm making an inference there, but we see here in verse 13 and 14, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. 
And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. So again, Ananias knew exactly who Saul was. He knew what Saul had done. He knew the danger that Saul brought. And no doubt Ananias had heard about the stoning of Stephen, Acts 7. Ananias had heard about how Saul had ravaged the church of Jerusalem, Acts 8, verse 3. And he had heard about how Saul had gone from house to house, dragging off men and women and thrown them into prison. Ananias knew how much evil Saul had done. That word evil that's used here in this verse is is translated as harm in the New American Standard Bible. It means to be morally reprehensible. It means to injure. It it means to be destructive. It's anything that goes against God. Our culture often today doesn't like to use the word evil because to use the word evil means there's something that's right and there's something that's wrong. And because our society no longer stands on truth but on, on processing morality, in changing times, people are afraid to call evil, evil. And we've got to understand that God's word says, no, there are evil things. And those things which are evil is anything that is destructive against the name of God or the word of God or the ways of God. That is to be considered evil. Theologically speaking, evil is the opposite of good. God is a good God. And the devil is an evil devil. And anything that glorifies God and his word is considered good. And anything that goes against God and his word is evil. Which just simply means all sin is evil. It means adultery is evil. It means fornication is evil. It means that homosexuality is evil. It means that the LGBTQ plus whatever, 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 Agenda is evil. If it's sinful, it's evil, no matter what it is. And we've got to be reminded that any agenda or any affront to the word of God and to God's ways is to be considered as evil. Saul was considered as evil because he went against Christ. This also is only the second time in the New Testament in this same verse here that the word saints is used. The word saints is used right there. You know, a lot of times we think of ourselves as sinners, And I think that's okay to think of yourself as a sinner, but you can need to also think of yourself as a saint, right? This is how Christ refers to his own people. In fact, the Bible says in Matthew, the first time the word saint is used in the New Testament is Matthew 27, 52 through 53, while Christ is hanging on the cross. Remember that part that says the tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised talking about Old Testament believers, and coming out of the tombs, and after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. The word saints refers not only to the dead who were raised during the crucifixion, but also to the living who are in Christ today. The word saints refers not to an NFL football team in New Orleans, right? Uh, But it refers to those Christians who are set apart, those Christians who are set apart, those who have been made holy by the blood of Jesus. If you're in Christ this morning, then you are positionally to see yourself as a saint. Don't, don't keep calling yourself a sinner so much that you forget you're a saint. You hear what I'm saying? There's a balance to it. I get it. I'm the chief of sinners, Paul says, after his conversion. So it's not wrong to think, you know what? I'm still a sinner. I'm just saying if that's all you view yourself as, it starts to almost become an excuse for how you live. Well, I'm a sinner. 
You need to say, you know what? God's called me to be a saint. And positionally in Christ, my sins have been washed clean. And I'm no longer enslaved to that. And sin doesn't have power over me like it used to because I'm free in Christ. And as a saint, and as one of God's blood-bought children, I'm gonna walk with him. And I'm asking you to help me, Lord. I wanna live for you. I don't wanna just keep making the excuse, well, everybody's a sinner. God, help me to live a pure and holy life before you. And so here we're being reminded that there are saints that Saul had been persecuting. He had been dragging them down. And we've got to understand that, that God is calling Ananias to go to this great persecutor of the church, Saul. And I like how Ananias is having a good conversation with God. He's not complaining. He's not saying no. He, he's just saying, wait, wait, let me make sure I'm hearing this right. You're talking about Saul, the guy who's been doing this. And I would say that it's okay to have conversations with God. We read in the Bible about those who are wrestling with God. Jacob wrestled with God. We see the psalmist wrestling with God. But just make sure that when you're wrestling, you're ready to lose. When you're wrestling, you're like, all right, God, I'm wrestling, but it's your way. And it's your word. And I'm going to follow you no matter what. Just help me get there, Lord. Help me get to that place where you want me to be. I'm not rejecting your directive. I'm just processing it. And I need a little help to have some sanctified thinking in my mind right now. It's okay to consider what God's saying, but it's not okay to cancel out what God is saying. It's okay to think about it, but it's not okay to turn it down. It's okay to filter what God is saying, but it's not okay to falter. Again, consider, don't counsel, think, don't turn down, filter, but don't falter. If Hudson Taylor had never gone to the dangerous territory of inland China, then many may have never come to know Christ. If C.T. Studd was only looking for protection from danger, then he would have never set up a rescue shop within a yard of hell. If Adoniram Judson was not willing to go to Burma, then many have never maybe seen the Bible in their own language. If David Livingston was not willing to go to dangerous places, then much of Africa may have never been evangelized. If John G. Patton was not willing to go to the cannibalistic islands of the South Pacific, then many of the natives there would have never heard of the name of Jesus. If Jim Elliott was afraid of the Aka Indians in Ecuador, then the Wadani people may have never been reached. I mean, we know God's sovereign over that. He could have sent someone else, but we're just saying in God's sovereign plan, we need to be faithful and fearless men and women who would follow God anywhere. Now, I think we should be wise, but I think we should also be afraid of danger. I think we should be afraid of it in the sense of it's natural to have healthy fear And at the same time, that doesn't control our decisions. Our decisions are based on convictions and our convictions are based on scripture. And scripture is clear that we're to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. I think that we should be willing to take the risks. If you're only looking for safety, you're in the wrong church. Some other churches in town that just might wanna keep you nice and safe. But if you're here, we're gonna talk about confronting the culture taking the gospel to the nations and understanding that's our calling as a Christian. What adventure are you on? I mean, do you really want to live a boring life where there's no hardship or difficulty? That's a life that stinks in my book. (laughs) 
You got to fight for it. Anything that's worth anything is worth fighting for. What prices are you willing to pay so that others may hear of the name of Christ? I mean, our ultimate goal should be to honor and obey the call of the Lord, no matter the cost. And some of us are getting a little lazy. You've been saved a decade. You've been saved 20 years. You've forgotten about that newfound faith when you were maybe in high school or college and you're like, I'll go talk to anybody about the gospel. We see that so often in our young people and you start talking to old people and they just need to get back in shape, right? We need to get back in spiritual shape to have that fervor and that that desire to say, you know what, it matters. What I'm doing today matters. God help me be faithful. Ananias was concerned about human protection, I think to a degree, but what we see is what God wants, your next blank, what God wants is faithful service. God wants faithful service, verses 15 and 16, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. What God wants is faithful service. The Lord listened to Ananias and he said, go. So he didn't listen to Ananias and say, hey, you know what, Ananias, you're right. What was I thinking? Why don't you just stay home? I'll find somebody else to go. He's like, Ananias, that's right. You were talking about the same guy. I want you to go. And the Lord makes it clear of what his sovereign plan is for Saul. Saul is a chosen instrument. Just as every believer was first loved by God and therefore chosen by God as a part of the elect, Saul was chosen by God from eternity past. This is not something that just happened in real time. This is Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, but he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So Saul was chosen. He was a chosen instrument. That word instrument means that he is a human being exercising a particular function. God doesn't choose people just to sit on the bench. Come on, he doesn't. That's where you get fat, on the bench, all right? He chooses us to get in the game. I mean, my goodness, if you're trying out for the team, do you really want to say, hey, coach, I really want to be on the team, but I just want to sit on the bench for every game, the whole game, and that's all I want to do. And the coach is like, get out of here. I'm not looking for players like you, right? We understand God's called us to be active in service, And he chose Saul to put him into the very center of evangelizing the Gentile world. God doesn't choose people who spend their whole lives pursuing the idol of comfort and ease and passivity. He chose you to be in his service. And the call to ministry is not to be taken on a whim or as an afterthought, Later, Paul shares the seriousness of this choice in Galatians 1.1, where he writes, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him up from the dead. Colossians 1.25, Paul wrote, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you and to make the word of God fully known. So I get it. There are some people who are called to be pastors and elders and missionaries, and there's some who aren't. And it doesn't mean that there's two levels of Christianity. It just means that some are supposed to do that with all of their hours, and some are to do it as they work 
a lot of their hours and do their normal job. We're all called out of darkness into light, but there is a special, specific calling for the apostles and for those who are appointed to ministry in the office of elder or deacon. But we know here that God had a specific plan for Saul for his glory. Saul was to carry the name of Christ. You see what the scripture says, carry the name of Christ before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So there's a special play here that Saul's gonna participate in according to the providence of God. Saul was to understand that though he often was gonna preach to the Jews first, his primary calling was to minister to the Gentiles. Paul writes in Romans 11, 13 through 14, now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. He knows that. That's part of his focus is to really reach out beyond the Jewish world and into the Gentile world. In Romans 15, 15 through 16, Paul writes, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by the way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. So he knew that was his calling. We also know that Paul was privileged to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ before kings. He did so before King Agrippa in Acts 25, 23. He did so possibly even before Caesar, 2 Timothy 4, 16 through 17. And now in verse 16 here of our text, here in Acts 9, it says, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now that's the part we don't like to hear, right? The part we like to hear is go, go, go. Preach the gospel. Thousands come to Christ. And we're like, let's do it. And you forget about this part. Like, oh, and you might get hit right in the mouth. And you might be persecuted beyond anything that our country has ever experienced up to this point in time. It may be very difficult. Certainly it was for Saul. In fact, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's read a couple of these passages that talk about the suffering that indeed encompassed Saul and his ministry. I would say following Christ, serving Christ, preaching the gospel can and does lead to much joy, but it can and often also leads to immense suffering. 1 Corinthians 4, 9 through 13, Saul, now Paul writes, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles last of all, so he's saying, hey, even though I'm an apostle, times I feel like the last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, you are strong, you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. So he's talking to people in Corinth and he's saying, if you've been sucked into the system of the world, you're gonna be elevated and we're gonna be considered foolish. That's what happens to the apostles. That's maybe what's gonna to happen to us. Verse 11, 1 Corinthians 4, 11, to the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed. You ever think about the missionaries that come home from the field and you see them get up and give their presentation and you'll be like, they don't have any style. <laughs> they don't have any class, right? And it's a reminder, sometimes they're gonna be poorly, who cares? Who cares what they're wearing? I'm thankful they're being faithful to take the gospel to wherever it is God's called them to take it. And the idea of, of course, we want to, you know, help them make sure they're properly clothed. But you, you get the point here. He's saying it's difficult. We hunger, we thirst, we're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. 
We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I wonder if somebody would have told you about that before you became a Christian, if you still would have bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus. They're like, hey man, I want you to step out of darkness into light. It's gonna be awesome. You're gonna serve Jesus and you're gonna be like scum. And you're gonna be like refuse. And you're gonna be hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed. You wanna come to Jesus? I wonder how you might have responded, right? But we're learning and understanding that this is what is with the life of a faithful servant of Christ. Look now, if you will, 2 Corinthians 11. He chronicles a lot more. If you think that's tough, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 through 30. At least Jesus is telling Saul from the get-go, look, I'm going to save you and I'm going to use you to talk to kings, but it's going to be tough. You're going to have a really difficult time. I'm going to show you, in fact, how much you must suffer for the sake of Christ. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, five times I received the hands at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not ignorant? Uh, indignant, excuse me, and I'm not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. I love how he ends that. If I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast about what I've been through because what I've been through is a badge of honor. It's a mark of a Christian who is willing to put up with all of this without being angry or upset. I just want to serve my Lord. Again, if, if I would have told you if you walk through this door to follow Christ and on the other side of this door is this kind of hardship and suffering, would you walk through it? Would you walk through the call to serve Christ if you knew that you would go through similar sufferings? Turn with me over to one more chapter, 2 Corinthians 12. So just one chapter to the right, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Paul writes this, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Is it worth it? I would say yes. That's precisely what he's saying. Hey, it's been tough, but it is so worth it. There's greater joy and greater resolve and greater purpose and greater passion and greater reward and greater strength 
in Christ than anything this world has to offer. And what God wanted from Ananias was for him to be faithful with what God had called him to do. And what God wanted from Saul was for Saul to be faithful with what it was that God had called him to do. And what God wants from you is for you to be faithful for what it is that God has called you to do. Hopefully we can follow in the same sentiment of like, all right, Lord, I'm going to do it with your help, by your spirit, knowing I'm weak and I'm broken and I'm not able, but in you, Lord, I know I'll be made strong. Well, we've looked at the fact that Ananias was commissioned to reach out. He was convinced to obey even in difficulty. And lastly, we see Ananias completed the work to which he was called. Verse 17, your next blank says, Ananias came bringing good news to his brother. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying hands, his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we see now Ananias completes his mission. He obeyed exactly what it was that the Lord called him to do. He entered that house on Straight Street and and he talked to Saul and Ananias didn't waste any time, but he laid his hands on him, which is the posture of approval and blessing. And he said, Brother Saul. Remember, he's asking, hey, is this the same guy who's been persecuting the church? And the word brother, we understand that word to be used by Jesus. And it's used in many other times in the New Testament to refer to fellow believers, to fellow believers. And so Saul here is affirming uh, or being affirmed by Ananias. And he, he's, he's calling him brother Saul. What a beautiful thing even for Ananias to be a Samaritan. Uh, notice that uh, Ananias is not an apostle. He's not a well-known Jew. Remember, he's an obscure saint. And yet he comes and he lays hands on on Saul. And in a sense, he's affirming his faith, calling him Brother Saul. And not only did Ananias come that Saul might regain his sight, but he came that he would also be filled with the Holy Spirit. It is another example, again, of the unity of the New Testament church by leaders verifying the gospel uh, conversion of an individual before God sovereignly filled that new convert with the Holy Spirit. So again, he came and said, Brother Saul, Jesus sent me to come to you so that you can regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was definitely at work in Saul's life, convicting him of his sin, convincing him of the Lordship of Christ, converting him from a life of spiritual pride, placing him into Christ's body, the church, and indwelling him permanently. At this point, being filled with the Holy Spirit also empowered Saul for Christian service. There's also significance, again, in the fact that it was Ananias the Samaritan. Remember the the rift between the Jews and the Samaritans? And yet it's this Samaritan believer, Ananias, who comes to affirm Saul as his brother. One commentator states, the Spirit transformed Saul in two fundamental ways. First, He took Saul's natural strengths and refined them. Saul was a gifted and natural leader with strong-willed power. He was a man of strong convictions, a self-starter, bold, a master at using his time and talents, a motivational, uh, a motivated uh, individual, and profoundly gifted thinker and speaker. Second, the Holy Spirit also eliminated undesirable characteristics and replaced them with desirable ones. He replaced Saul's cruel hatred with love, his restless, aggressive spirit with peace, his rough, hard-nosed treatment of people with gentleness, his pride with humility. Well, that is what the Holy Spirit can do 
and he does in each one of our lives as we surrender more and more to him. Next, we see in verse 18, Saul was able to see again and was baptized. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose or he rose and was baptized. As Saul was healed from his blindness, something like scales, this verse says, fell from his eyes. The word scales is a word that is used of the scales of fish and crocodiles. The Bible does not actually say that these were scales, but something like scales. The point here would be that there was a barrier to Saul's sight that could only miraculously be removed by the transcendent power of a healing God. And since this occurrence was part of Saul's testimony, this same um, story about the scales being removed of his eyes has been prayed Millions of times since then. You ever prayed that way? God, we're just praying. You would take the scales off their eyes so they could see you. That's that hope that we have of if Paul was converted, then whoever I'm praying for could be converted and God will remove the scales from the eyes of those that he calls to himself. Saul hated his enemies, but now Saul saw them as friends. And at this point, he was baptized into Christ and therefore baptized into the family of God. This internal transformation is simply illustrated by the act of water baptism. Saul was baptized. It's presumed it's water baptism because that's what the word means, to be immersed in water. And every testament, uh, every teaching throughout Acts shows that they were done, that was done to be done in water. We've talked about that many times. And then we see here, verse 19, Saul was strengthened. Verse 19, in taking food, he was strengthened. After three days... Earlier, we read he was going to be there three days with no food or water sitting in the darkness. And so he must have been famished. And at this point, he was able to take some food and to get his strength back. Just please note, first, Saul had his heart taken care of. Then he had his body taken care of. Just a good reminder to continue to make sure we know our inner man is of greater value to God than our outer man. And yet at the same time, obviously, he took food and was strengthened. Ananias was somewhat of an obscure saint. No one had ever heard of him before Acts 9. Like Edward Kimball, the young Sunday school teacher that led D.L. Moody to Christ, Ananias was a faithful evangelist. Some have evangelized hundreds and even thousands. And some share the gospel with just one person at a time. Both are needed in God's kingdom. It may be that you just evangelize your children and you see God use them in amazing ways. Our goal isn't to compare or contrast who has the greatest convert. Our goal is to preach God's word. Our task is to lead men and women, boys and girls to Christ. It's God's task to use them for his glory. And every person is important to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to learn more about this obscure saint, Ananias, who obviously played a key role in the conversion of Saul and in the early days of Saul coming into the fellowship of believers there in Damascus. We pray, God, as we continue to study through Acts, that you would open our eyes to see more truth and with more clarity have gospel conviction deep in our hearts that we would be faithful today to represent you in all that we are and in all that we do. Encourage us today, God, to be faithful even in the little things. 
that you might take them and make much of them for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.